1: Welcome to Executive Leaders Radio. In this hour, you'll hear directly from our region's finest business leaders. Through each of the interviews, these high-achieving leaders become relatable role models who share how they were able to build their enterprise, their personal secrets of success, about leadership styles and opportunities that lie ahead. Prepare to be inspired and entertained and hear wisdom unheard elsewhere. Executive Leaders Radio.
2: You're listening to Executive Leaders Radio, broadcasting from Radio America. This is your host, Les Smolin, and my co-hosts. Andrew Howard of Howard Insurance, Joe Applebaum of the Potomac Companies, and Gabe Muller at Muller Consulting. We've got a great lineup of guests for you on our show today. First up, we're going to have Courtney Spaeth, the CEO of Growth Period, then Rachel Everett, CEO of the Darity. Tracy Shen, Managing Partner at Florin Group, and Sherry Karamides. Is that right? Karamides. Karamides, Executive Director at the American Occupational Therapy Association. First up is uh, Courtney Spaeth, CEO of Growth Period. Courtney, what is Growth Period?
3: We're a business development and transaction advisory services firm, Less, We do uh, organic growth and inorganic growth advisory work. We help companies when work with governments, with private sector entities, and we're not a broker dealer, but we do a lot of growth to exit work and a lot of diligence.
2: And how big or small are you guys?
3: We're 51 people.
2: And how did you get a job there? I founded it. What do you mean you founded it?
3: I'm the CEO and founder. I started it in 2007.
2: What was happening with you before 2007 that gave you the uh, seed of an idea that says I think I'd like to do this?
3: I was a corporate vice president at Raytheon prior to that and before that a director at Lockheed Martin doing business development and uh, for a variety of personal and professional reasons wanted to be an entrepreneur and decided that there was a gap in the market that the in particular, the defense market where I came out of and initially started the business in mm-hmm. uh, needed some professional killers, not eaters, people who could win work but didn't want to run the work. Okay. And where did you grow up? I grew up outside of Philadelphia on the mainland.
2: And uh, siblings, where are you in the pecking order?
3: I'm the youngest. I have three step siblings.
2: Okay. And uh, what were mom and dad doing?
3: you'd have to be specific about the time of my life because it vastly changes.
2: All right let's go back uh, 8 to 14.
3: 8 to 14 my mother was part-time working in a retail store and a homemaker, and my father owned his own company doing a commercial real estate development.
2: So he's doing commercial real estate development and what is it that you take from dad that you use today these days?
3: Well he was an entrepreneur which looking back I think I didn't note at the time as something significant but I'm definitely entrepreneurial so a sense of independence and uh, for a long period of our childhood he had a good sense of humor and I think I bring that to the table a lot at work
2: and what about mom
3: Uh, she has a very strong work ethic not as motivated but she will get up at six in the morning and clean the entire house with a toothbrush um, you know but she didn't translate that to the workplace so I get the work ethic from her but a different level of drive okay
4: Andrew what do you got Courtney did you play sports growing up
3: I did the school I went to required that we play three sports a year and I tended to do track tennis and basketball
4: tell me about the aspects of each of those that uh, you carry with you today
3: I'm not sure I carry much from tennis except bursitis in my right shoulder. But from basketball, definitely a spirit of collegiality. I'm a good team player. And from running, I like to be on my own. I like to keep my own counsel. And running allowed me to have time in my own head.
4: So you found a balance between individual success and drive uh, to run and you know the, the teammate, team aspect of
5: things.
3: Yes, I think I actually have a very good balance of that.
4: Gabe,
5: what are you thinking? According to the green room, you mentioned uh, the school in which you w- went to. Um, there's something that you was was unique about that. Can you share that with us?
3: Well, growing up, I went to a preparatory school from first through 12th grade. We called ourselves lifers. And it had been primarily all male until a couple years before I went in. I went in when I was six years old and was one of three girls in my class. And my parents had a specific philosophy, in particular my father, that the real world was made up at the executive ranks at the time. And remember, I'm old, so this was the 80s, of mostly men and Christians men and I'm Jewish and female. So uh, he wanted me to learn how to succeed in an environment that he thought more realistically near the
5: future world. And so what does it mean for you to be sort of the, the trailblazer in this world in a variety of different areas?
3: Well, I feel a huge sense of responsibility to other women regardless of my position. And I think I feel a lot of compassion and connection to people who have been the underdog. On the other hand, I also have a very unique ability to ignore my environment, meaning I act the way I'd act regardless of whether it's all men in the room or whether it would be all women. We might discuss different things, but it doesn't change my personal sense of confidence. Go
6: ahead, Is that Did you drive that from your father?
3: No, I drove that from my, my educational environment. I mean, it was 12 years of that, so you either learned to assert yourself or you got stepped on.
6: And how does that translate in how you run? Growth period?
3: I think it translates more into how I parent, but at growth period, we have 91% retention over almost 13 years. Uh, Our culture is very strong, and I allow for a lot of individual responsibility, but at the same time, I don't have an office. I sit in the conference room, and that's born of the idea that it's very intimidating to go into the boss's office and shut the door. So if I'm in a conference room, you can come in and talk to me, and it's not unusual, and now the entire office. The executive staff all sit in the conference room, which drives me a little nuts because it was also kind of my office. <laughs> uh, but it's created this sense of collegiality and teamwork, which I think really permeates. Even when I'm not there, they all sit in there.
2: Where does this collegiality and teamwork really emanate from? You did play sports, right?
3: Yes. As I said before, I, I well, there played. There team sports. I played basketball, which was a team sport, and I was varsity, though my senior year I was manager because I had an injury. But I refused to leave the team. I managed the team and went to every game and maintained my varsity status because, again, I had a responsibility to my teammates.
2: Where does this sense of responsibility come from?
3: I think the absence of it from my parents. What do you mean? Well, when I was about 20 years old, my father went to federal prison for a white collar offense, and my mom worked in retail and sort of absconded the reality that was going on. Uh, I was left with massive bills, legal bills. They divorced, house issues, logistical issues. And it's my name. His name was my name. So uh, I felt a very strong sense of responsibility that I was going to take care of all of that. This is
2: as the youngest.
3: Well, my step-siblings, it's just a different, they had their own set of issues.
2: It's a lot of responsibility to take on for a young person. Yes. What prepared you to do that?
3: Definitely my education, the fact that I went to this almost all-male school. I went to Episcopal Academy outside of Philadelphia. Great school. I love it. But we went to chapel three times a week, and I'm Jewish, and it was mostly all-male, and I'm female. Um, And I just learned to assert myself without losing my sense of self, and I was also very happy to be feminine. I've always liked pretty dresses, and I have long hair. So I think just the ability to maintain a balance of who I am at the core, but also navigate the environment in a way that gives me a voice.
5: One of the things I heard from you in the green room was you had mentioned some of the experiences that you've had has allowed you to, um, it's resulted in the absence of victim syndrome, Mm -hmm. and I really like that. How does that show up in growth period today, and how do you share that with others?
3: Well, it shows up in growth, period, Gabe, because we survive, right? We're the only family-owned business, as far as we're aware, in the entire United States that does what we do. And perseverance, whether you're female or not as an entrepreneur, is critical. But we get a lot of rejection sometimes because it is woman-owned. And that's just reality. And so we don't walk around saying, woe is me. Let's go play Remington Steel and get a figurehead who's male. We persevere and let our work stand for itself.
2: You used an expression earlier, um, Around fear. What was that expression
3: and where does that come from? I don't recall the expression. And fear
2: so. is not the currency.
3: Yes. Um, I don't think you should use fear to drive your decisions. And I think it comes from losing the things that I cared about the most my family, right? It totally fell apart in a way that never re configured in a, in, a, in a healthy way. I have no relationship with my father, uh, and you know we were close when I was a child, uh, and my mother and my relationship kind of configured differently after that experience. So I think what's important is that once you realize that if you lose the things that matter externally, it's easier to make decisions about ancillary items, right? So education to me is one of the most important things because it's something no one can ever take away from you. But if you use fear to make decisions, I think you have a lot of regrets and a lot of paralytic behavior that, you know, at the end of your life, no one really looks back and says, Wow, I really wish I hadn't done what I wanted to do more because I was scared at the time.
2: How does that affect what you do with your kids?
3: Oh, I'm, um, I think I'm a good parent. Um, I have two uh, Stepchildren, who I really am the mom. Their mother passed away when they were young, and I have a baby. And then we raised our housekeeper's daughter, um, and you know, so I'm very focused. I'm definitely the parent. We don't have a lot of anger in our household. We're not yellers, very much like at work. It's the intent behind the mistake that we judge you on, not the mistakes itself. But uh, not going to college is not, it's, you know, it's it's not up for grabs in my house. I tell mm-hmm. my children, you live in a benevolent dictatorship, and Dad and I are God. So you can think it's a democracy, but. It's not. <laughs> right. We take your wishes into consideration, and we try very hard to encourage what they're interested in. But I also provide, I think, a strong sense of work ethic, discipline, and expectation. Yeah. And I didn't have anybody like that in my life when I was a kid. So... You know, I'm very conscious of discussing the world with them and talking about different professions. I never knew what an engineer was until I went to hmm. University of Pennsylvania and saw the School of Engineering. And I was like, what's an engineer? Yeah. So I try very hard to expose my children to non traditional paths.
2: Thanks, Courtney. Courtney, what's the website for growth?
3: Growthperiod.com.
2: Thanks. We've been speaking with Courtney Space, CEO at growthperiod.com. Uh, don't forget to visit our website at Executive Leaders Radio to learn more about our executive leaders, and we'll be right back in a moment after this Business Spotlight. This is Les Smolen with Vistage International, and this is your Business Spotlight. Joining us today is Sheen Jin uh, as the Business Development Manager at Florin Group. Welcome, Sheen. Uh, Hi. Sheen, what is uh, Florin Group?
7: Florin Group is a uh, uh, wealth management uh, uh, company that helps multi-generation families to plan their uh, financials.
2: And, and what's your role in the company?
7: I am a uh, business development manager. What does that mean? Uh, I meet people and meet new people and uh, take care of the uh, the relationship for the, the company and hopefully bring in the new business. Mm-hmm.
2: And, and what do you like most about the job?
7: I think um, I like to meet new people and then talking about my passion about how uh, we can help them to basically planning their their their, their financials for their for, for their families.
2: And where does this passion come from?
7: Uh, this passion, passion, passion comes from the uh, um, I think like from my own background that I uh <coughs> um, for um,
2: mm-hmm.
7: so um,
2: what in your like background
7: a, so I'm actually like a financial uh, analyst uh, when I start with the company uh, but like I told Tracy that I might w- which is the CEO of the company uh, that I, I am actually a people person instead of just the financial planning behind the p- computer. So she gave me opportunities to uh, to go with her to, to network where I find I, c- I can help people in that way. It's more instant uh, um, re- results. So I can you get see to use people. more
2: of the talents and skills that you yes, have. Yes, yes. Yeah. Is that what makes your organization special, or is there something else?
7: I think that's actually definitely uh, make our uh, organization special. Is What's that? that? We're really close. Um, uh, Tracy, our, our CEO, really uh, keep our coworkers together, and it's like a family, like running business, and they also she treats the, the clients like, uh, like family as well.
2: And who is the perfect client for you all? Uh,
7: actually, best my best friend's mom, um, which is actually my best friend uh, introduced me to Tracy, and mm-hmm. I got a job with Tracy.
2: Great. What's the website address for the company?
7: It's floringroup.com.
2: Right. Thank you. We've been speaking with Shin Ching, who's the Business Development Manager at Florin Group. This is Les Smolin, and that's been your Business Spotlight.
1: And your name is? Ramon Parker. And Ramon, name of the organization? Loudon Free Clinic. And you were telling me there's some, something special about the Loudon Free Clinic, where every dollar that goes in does something else. What was that all about? Yeah, it does
8: something magical. So for every dollar that's donated to our clinic, we can deliver eight dollars worth of care.
1: And what kind of clinic is this? Who are you you helping out? What kind of stuff do you guys do?
8: So we're helping out those who are 18 to 64 who are uninsured and low income, 200 percent or below the federal poverty level.
1: And give me this thing about the math again. Give me how that works.
8: So essentially, I have a, a staff of 12 individuals and 128 volunteers. So with that kind of payer mix, I'm able to deliver, you know, anywhere from $8 uh, in care for our patients.
1: Because you've been able to enroll the support of so many volunteers, you're actually keeping the cost of health care down and therefore multiplying the dollars. And making one of, the, one of the best business
8: investments for private corporations who want to invest. And
1: didn't, ah, uh, interesting. So private businesses and individuals can get involved. And didn't you Absolutely. tell me you had a couple of healthcare care challenges yourself? What were they?
8: I have. I've had four open heart surgeries and mm-hmm. it helps me to understand what patients need. What are
1: you talking about? What do you mean?
8: So the idea of having been on the table or being a patient, I'm able to take a patient focus in how we deliver care
1: differently than most people would. What would you you learn from those experiences personally? What do you appreciate that most of us don't? I appreciate consistency.
8: Um, I think that a a staff at the hospital, nurses, providers, Mm -hmm. parents, Mm -hmm. family, all those people consistently being around me and consistently offering me hope. Uh, I'm so full of it that I have to offer that to the patients and to the staff when I'm working with them.
1: What's the website address for the Loudon Free Clinic? Loudonfreeclinic.org. Let me have that one more time.
8: L-O-U-D-O-U-N-freeclinic.org.
1: We've been speaking with your name again? Ramon Parker. And this has been your Business Spotlight. Thank you.
2: We're back and you're listening to Executive Leaders Radio. This is your host, Les and It's my pleasure to introduce you to our next guest, Rachel Everett, CEO of Viderity. Rachel, what is The Viderity
9: the is a technology and management staffing and services firm. And we put together powerful teams to solve our clients' toughest problems. We typically do that on three to five year contracts and work on site in their building, um, tackling everything from technology, communications, marketing, management, and operations.
2: How big or small is this company?
9: We have 137 employees.
2: And uh, how would you get a job there?
9: Well, I founded the company in 2008.
2: 2008? What were you doing right before that?
9: I was overseeing all the IT contracts for one of the largest consultancies in the United States. And I noticed that they oftentimes move people from the bench onto contracts they're not equipped to perform just to get them billing again. And I wanted to do it differently. I wanted to be able to pick and choose who I put on the contracts, do skills testing, make sure that I was, you know, receiving more accolades than having to make apologies. <laughs> so you just
2: decided, I-, I think I'll do this on my own then.
9: I did, but I got a little help. I asked the senior vice president of this consultancy if I could go after one of the clients I had met through them if I agreed to give them subcontract work over the next five years, and he fortunately took a bet on me and said, if you can put a team together and sell it to that client, and you make us a subcontractor, and we can mm-hmm. earn rent right of and go for it, and I did, and it worked, so I, I didn't break any um, you know, handbook rules, and it, it went fine. That first contract was successful, That's and I, I departed. Parted after that and used earnings from that first contract to create more work. All right. Where are you from? I'm originally from West Virginia, so over the hills and through the valley in a very small little town with, um, you know, at the time I was growing up an area store, restaurant, movie, theater, bar. <laughs> very Small simple, town. Very small.
2: Small town, simple. How did that influence you growing up?
9: it allowed me to be around a great diversity of people there's a huge dichotomy of rich and poor in a small town like that Hmm. so you you understand what it takes to survive and do hard work and um, there's also a certain humbleness and that, you know, people help each other. So it just it gave me a feeling of that you can make a difference for others and that you really have to be a strong community to survive.
2: Yeah, and what were mom and dad doing?
9: My mom at the time was a nurse and my dad was in real estate. So
2: dad was in real estate and mom was a nurse. Yes. Uh, was that unusual in your town? Were you the folks who had more money than others? How had that work?
9: We definitely were among the haves versus the have-nots.
2: Uh, And how did that affect you?
9: I think that, you know, it it was good and bad, actually, you know, because you get cast as what was called a townie. And that is something, you know, there was actually a really strong pride in being a redneck. And there was a strong identity there. And, you know, kids would wear sweatshirts that said redneck because they they identified with that. And Mm -hmm. you didn't want to have too much. You wanted to be able to be friends with everybody. So it made you try a little harder to be a chameleon and humble yourself so that you could fit in.
2: Andrew, what do you got?
4: Rachel, in the green room, uh, we learned about your relationship with Grandma Elaine. Uh, Talk to us about her and uh, spending time with her and what you learned.
9: She was a huge inspiration in my life. I feel so lucky to be born her granddaughter and lived just a couple blocks away. She, as a young woman, started a logging business and wore a man's suit, tie, newsboy cap, to do business with men in that era and then in the 30s developed a real estate company and was also one of the first women I think in the United States to get a graduate degree in business and so when I was growing up in grade school I was her shadow and I followed her around on all her business and volunteer tasks and she would give me all sorts of little odd jobs everything ranging from doing accounting and to writing marketing materials in grade school for this sizable business and I'm sure I didn't do it perfectly but she never let me know differently and it gave me a lot of courage to try things and confidence that I could be unstoppable.
4: Talk to me about the charity work and the impact at such a young age and and seeing this woman who you admired. um,
9: Sure. It really meant a lot to me to understand how differently people can live. I mean, we were doing Meals on Wheels with people in very remote areas that had no food or money. So bringing them meals meant survival for them. And you know, by the time I was nine, she let me take on my own district of families to bring meals to. So I was going out on my own and talking with them one on one and it just there's nothing that feels as good as helping others and there's nothing that gives you more perspective we are in such a sheltered environment if you have money and you're in a city like this and we think our our big problems are 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 huge when actually they're very quite small and once you have that perspective you know it allows you also to have a more of a a sense of humor about life and find the funny side because you realize that Our big things are really, really small things. (laughs) How does it
2: translate for you now? What do do you take from all this philanthropic and and volunteer work?
9: Well, it makes me want to um, encourage it among my staff. We have two volunteer days every year where they can choose where they go and spend their time to help out an organization or group of people. And I think that encourages helping and, and realize it makes them realize that there are other experiences in life that they're not familiar with that you can learn something from anyone. Mm-hmm. And you can, it makes you feel a little bit better about your life if you understand someone else's misfortune and, and also if you can make a difference for them.
5: Yeah, go ahead. Rachel, in the green room, you mentioned that you have a an older brother who. has has been an an enormous influence on your life and in your life. Can you share a little bit about that and how it applies to you today?
9: My brother Adrian, he's four years older than me, and he was also into technology. And he taught me how to code in middle school. So that really kicked off my interest in technology. And I don't think I would be in IT today if it weren't for him. And he was also a very big thinker, which meant a lot in a small town. Because when you're in a small town, you're not as exposed to many ideas and types of people. And he would love to remind me that, hey, you are one person among seven billion on this planet. This planet is one of a hundred billion in this galaxy, and this galaxy is one of maybe two trillion in the universe. So just keep that in mind that this is a really big world, and it's open to you, and you can do anything you want. Just cause no harm and try to help if you can.
6: So, Rachel, you've built a wonderful organization. You have a fantastic culture. Is it okay to fail?
9: I think it is very much so, yes, and that's something I learned early As a child, my parents were very busy with their work and hobbies, and I admired everything that they did because they did it well. And that hands-off approach gave me a huge amount of freedom, a lot of freedom to take risks, make mistakes, and not feel like I was being judged or under a microscope for them.
6: And how does that translate in how you run your company today and your staff?
9: Right. You know, I encourage people to take risks, and to come up with new ideas, and ask themselves, is is what they're assuming really true? Are there other possibilities? And that's where innovation is born. looking at something through maybe even a five-year-old's eyes of how could it be different can we try something completely new and do it in you know maybe a a experimental way and see if give it a chance see if it can make a huge difference.
5: Rachel you mentioned in school between eight and 14 you were in three different sports can you share with us what those were and perhaps with your favorite and what you learned from that.
9: I was in dancing all different types uh, cross-country running and track and I enjoyed all three but I enjoyed dance the most because it's, it's truly creative there are you know endless number of configurations that you can move your body in and sequences to different songs and something about that expression made me realize that all the possibilities there are in the world to make something of yourself and of course you should follow what's natural to you and you have a passion for it but you should take chances and and try new things and look at things from all the perspectives that you can and there's just so much possibility in dance and expression I've, I've carried that through my career and you know, offering new services. How specifically did you carry it through? Yeah. How does it show up for you? It shows up in terms of trying new services and trying new ways of delivering those services. So, you know, it's oftentimes people get funneled into one, different, one area of service provision or one type of client. And I think, you know, maybe we could take what we're doing here for this commercial client over here to the government. Why wouldn't it work for them? And how could we mold it a little bit differently, shape it differently, put it to a different song? And see if they could succeed with the same platform.
2: Is that is that a productive use of people's times? I thought you just got to put them to the grind and make them
9: work <laughs> hard. Well, that can um, you know get some work done, but it's not going to get you anywhere new, and it's not going to create progress.
2: Where did you learn that? What, what do you mean? It's not going to create progress. Well,
9: in order to create progress and to move with technology and the, the forwardness of, of you know, innovation, you have to do new things in new ways. And so if you just do things in the typical way and, you know, it's the grindstone, um, you're going to lose traction and you're going to fall behind the motion of other businesses and, and you won't, you'll fail eventually. So in order for these businesses and organizations to stay relevant, they need to keep exploring, trying new things. Um, progress innovate with the the latest ideas and and new uh, processes for getting them done is that what drives you that is a huge driver in my life because it's exciting I feel like there's nothing more exciting than creation and turning something around uh, creating a new process or tool um, for an organization and seeing them get huge benefits and efficiency happiness customer touch so just seeing those rewards and putting them to metrics it's it puts a big smile on my face
2: Thanks, Rachel. Rachel, what's the website address for Fiderity?
9: V i d e r i t y V-I-D-E-R-I-T-Y.com.
2: We've been speaking with Rachel Everett, CEO of Fidarity. Don't forget to visit our website, executiveleavesradio.com, to learn more about our executive leaders. And we'll be back right after this
10: break. This is John Join us. Joining us for our business spotlight is Barry File. Who are you with, Barry?
11: I'm with Celebrate Fairfax, yeah. a 501c3 nonprofit in Fairfax, Virginia.
10: And what do you do with uh, Celebrate Fairfax?
11: I am very fortunate to be the president and CEO of the organization. So, what does Fairfax, or excuse me, Celebrate Fairfax, do? We have a mission to celebrate Fairfax County and its communities. We serve the 1.1 million people who live in the county, and all, as well as all the people who uh, visit and work there.
10: So, uh, what do you enjoy about working at Celebrate Fairfax?
11: It is the best job in the world. It is. We come to work every day, my team and I. And we get to prepare and plan and produce events for 75,000, 100,000 people. And we treat them like, we think of them like like they're our our friends. So So we get to come in and just plan great events for them.
10: What makes those events so special?
11: We try to be unique uh, within this region especially, but we're always trying to stretch the envelope of what people expect from events. People go to events because they want to have great experiences. And for us, we are always trying to give them that return on investment because they're not giving us necessarily a lot of money when they come to our events, but they are giving us their time and their energy, and that's an important thing. People want that ROI back.
10: So did you ever think you'd be doing this when you were a kid? No,
11: never. I, I think that when I was a kid, I, w- I, was, I was building things, designing things, and somewhere along the line I fell into events and realized that it was a natural extension for me, that I just loved producing things. So what was it about being a kid that led you to this? Um, I think... That it was just the challenges that were there. I always tried to figure out solutions to problems that didn't exist. And uh, that's what we do now. It's it's the same principle.
10: So when do you first start overcoming big challenges as a kid?
11: Uh, I think I always was. Uh, I think that uh, I lived in a household with two older kids, parents who had their own things going on. And I think for me, I just always uh, tried to find my own way. What's your website? Our website is CelebrateFairFax.com.
10: This is John Shewhart,
1: and this has been your Business Spotlight. And your name is? Fred Diamond. And what organization are you with, Fred? I run the Institute for Excellence in Sales. What is that? What is the Institute for Excellence in Sales?
12: We provide services for sales professionals at the senior level, mid-level, junior level. We have programs for women in sales and millennial in sales and sales teams. So,
1: uh, And what are you doing for these folks? What kind of stuff do you help them with?
12: We provide training, traditional training, all around the world. We also bring uh, world-famous sales thought leaders and authors to regions around the country to provide workshops and seminars for sales leaders.
1: Huh, How long have you been doing this? We created the organization uh, about five years ago. And wh- 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 why, why do you enjoy doing this? What, what turns you on about what you're doing for a living?
12: Well, we are of service to the selling professional. We believe that sales is the most important department in any company and that uh, we're trying to make sales professionals lives better and trying to help them improve the trade
1: and why why do your customers keep coming back to you why would they come back or send their other people back to you
12: well we run amazing programs uh, sales training budgets have decreased but we are bringing some of the top sales trainers around the world to sales teams
1: And what's the advantage of bringing the top sales trainers to these teams why don't you just do it all yourself
12: uh, we're, we're able to bring some of the best in the world at a very reasonable cost to our members provide world-class sales training and uh, sales performance improvement to these organizations.
1: So as opposed to keeping all the money for yourself and limiting only your words getting to your clients' ears, you're trying to make sure that they get the best of breed. Exactly.
12: Yeah, we bring some of the top sales thought leaders in the world, Neil Rackham, Jill Conrath, Mark Hunter, to sales teams around the world.
1: And where do you bring, where where do you do these trainings?
12: Well, locally in the Washington DC region we have a number of programs. Uh, every third Friday at the USA Today building in Tyson's Corner. Mm-hmm. We also have a women in sales program that's typically the second Excellent. Tuesday. What's the website address? I-4-E-S-B-D. The letter I, the number
1: 4, E-S-B-D. Excellent. Dot com? Dot com or dot org. There we go. Thank you. This has been your business spotlight.
2: We're back and you're listening to Executive Leaders Radio. It's my pleasure to introduce you to our next guest, Tracy Shen, managing partner at Florin Group. Welcome, Tracy. Tracy, what is the Flooring Group?
13: The Forum Group is a holistic wealth advisory firm dealing especially with multi-generation family. Mm-hmm. And we try to inspire joy, compassion, and kindness through dealing with.
2: That's a little different than most traditional wealth advisors. Yes. Why is that? Why'd you choose that?
13: Because a lot of time we find that the family, they don't get along because of money or a lot of whole other issue. And so we try to just bring everyone together by teaching them to help each other, to be kind and thoughtful, to be non-judgmental.
2: That's a different approach. How many clients do you work with?
13: We work with about 100 clients.
2: Where are you from originally?
13: I'm originally born in Taiwan, and I immigrated to the U.S. when I was seven.
2: What was going on then?
13: My dad was applying to um, University of Northern Missouri uh, for auto engineering degree, and so we immigrated here because he wants to go to school in the U.S.
2: Andrew, what do you got?
4: In the green room, Tracy, we learned that you spent some time living with your grandparents. How old were you when you moved to the...
13: I think I was two to five years old when I was living with them.
4: And what did you learn uh, through that experience?
13: I love that experience. We were living in the countryside. I get to climb trees, play with bugs. It was just very freeing from the city.
4: And later, uh, there was... Significant event with your grandparents that had an effect on you. Uh, Tell us about that.
13: So my grandparent passed away when I was a teenager and um, My grandma was really special to me. And so when they passed away um, The family kind of had a lot of fighting because they never had done any estate plan I don't think they ever told their children about all their investment real estate all over the world they had dealings in south america united states europe everywhere and so i think the family was not close at that time and
4: it was a large family so uh, clearly you take
5: that into your work
4: at florin group you don't want to see your clients go through the same is that fair
13: that's fair to say
5: and is that uh, particularly why you led with uh, joy compassion and kindness as far as a mission of your firm yes so how does that show up in a in a client interaction How do you walk somebody through, and how do you prove to them that you have compassion, joy, and kindness behind what you do?
13: First of all, finance is a subject that most people, they don't want to talk about. And so we try to bring fun to finance. Um, And so what we do mainly is, you know, take them on a very magical experience journey where we look over everything and we talk to them about, you know, not only their, their goal and their wishes, but we try to incorporate and their kids goals and wishes into the planning so we'll meet with the parents separately then we'll meet with the adult children and then we'll try to bring everyone together.
5: So just, uh, just to back up for a second uh, can you share with us in 2012 as, as I believe is when you began and mm-hmm. started the firm can you tell us about that process and what you learned through it?
13: Yeah I originally started with uh, two other partner or friends who were with me in the same firm and you know, we want to create a firm where there's no agenda, there's no company pushing you to sell product. We want to create a firm where we can make a difference in the financial industry. And unfortunately, at the last minute, um, they kind of backed out with the financial side of things. And I was disappointed, but I kept going anyway. I kept continuing with the firm.
2: What was it about you that enabled you to do that as opposed to it would have been easier just to go back to get a job or something?
13: I guess I've always been a brave person. And I've always been, when I was a child, not being afraid of things because I always know there's some something higher that will help look out for me, take care of me. My parent even made a comment when I was little that I had fell off a horse uh, when I was five, but I didn't want to tell them in case they won't let me ride horses anymore. And so, and I I guess I I was just, you know, not ever afraid.
6: So, Tracy, that courage, that bravery, you said something in the green room that was very apropos. You are trying to change the way wealth managers or the wealth management business. Mm -hmm. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that?
13: Yeah. Yeah, so what we are trying to do is we're trying to bring a independent third-party advice. There's so many information out there, and we just try to guide our client on a journey regarding to their challenges. And So it's so- not
6: just about selling them a mutual fund or investing and in walking away and talking to them 90 days later?
13: Right. It's not about that. Some of our clients, we talk to on a monthly basis. Recently, last week, one of our clients uh, who is a widow, have no family. Um, we even took her to the emergency room so um, because she didn't want to hire a nurse. So hopefully she's listening to this and she will <laughs> hire someone.
6: <laughs> so, the, so the compassion and the joy that you mentioned earlier is the thread that will drive your business but it also drives your own passion.
13: Yeah we just want this world to be a more of a happier place uh, and so sometime I joke with my um, staff is that you know this is like we're trying to bring Florentopia um, into the world and we're trying to make a difference in however small way we can by just getting back to the olden day where everyone care more about each other and there's more of an understanding and
2: you grew up in, in, in an environment where, uh, obviously, you were living with multiple generations mm-hmm. of, of people. Yeah. Uh, and then all that got uprooted and, and you come to Taiwan, Was it? Uh, what was the hardest part of, of that making that transition here for you?
13: It actually wasn't too hard for me because I like new experience and traveling to different uh, country and learning about different culture and different people.
2: Where did that get instilled in you?
13: I think because my grandparent had always traveled around the world and so I think I'm more like my grandparent in terms of being an entrepreneur. They were entrepreneur. They traveled and you know, they helped out a lot of people.
5: Tracy, you mentioned that uh, your grandparents were incredibly talented at spoiling you. What, does that, uh, what do, impact did that have on you then and, and what have you learned from it and what, what do you do now?
13: So the impact was not so good when I was little. All my aunts and uncles said I was spoiled. And so I really didn't learn to be a nicer person until when I moved to the United States. And my parents really taught me to be a more kinder person and to be non-judgmental. And everyone has their own opinion, and I shouldn't put my opinion over their opinion. That's Um, a pretty
2: powerful lesson to learn as a young person. How did that stick with you? I mean, you could have been out just trying to make friends, but how did that lesson stick stick with you then, and how does it show up now?
13: I think the lesson from my mom and dad it was very good because I never judge other. I'm never jealous of other, or envious of other, and so I just, you know, figure everyone has do their own thing, and everyone has their own strength and weakness. And so being a trusting person that sometimes, you know, I just look at the the good in people.
2: Does that help with business or does that hurt? Seriously.
13: Uh, I think initially it hurt it because I didn't understand all the, the, um, there are people out there who may not be as open and transparent. And there are people who have insecurity, so then they brought their insecurity to work. And then they're afraid, so then they do something not so good. Um, But now I'm much more cautious.
2: Hmm. Um, Does anybody have uh, have another question here you want to ask?
5: Can you tell us a little about uh, the relationship that you had with your mom when you were growing up?
13: Yeah, the relationship with my mom when I was growing up um, uh, was... Um, good um, because she, I didn't realize this but and she didn't realize this until later but uh, her one year was deaf so a lot of times she would make me repeat things a couple of times um, and uh, so I got to be very patient mm. um, and I got to be very good at dealing with you know my grandparents um, her her dad at repeating myself and, and and being patient.
2: Yeah, I need to. I need to cut this at this point. We're get, we're getting towards the end. So, um, Tracy, thanks. What's Tracy. the website address for Florin Group?
13: The website address is floringroup.com. F L O R I N G R O U P. Thanks.
2: We've been speaking with Tracy Shen, managing partner at Florin Group. Don't forget to visit our website, executiveleadersradio.com, to learn more about our executive leaders. And we'll be back in a moment, right after this business spotlight. And your name is?
14: I'm Tina Leoni. I'm the CEO of the Boston Business Improvement District.
1: And what is the Boston Business Improvement
14: District? We work to attract, support, and connect the most compelling, creative, and ambitious minds in our region. Boston is known as an epicenter for research and discovery. Uh, Some of the greatest things that are invented such as the MRI, the barcode, the internet the first satellite, all were either conceived, funded, or developed by organizations here in Boston.
1: How, how old is this organization?
14: We're just, just shy of six years old.
1: How long have you been, there? Have you been uh, there?
14: Almost six years as well.
1: Did you found this organization?
14: Yes, I, I am the founding CEO.
1: Why did you do that?
14: Well, they, they, the organization actually came about uh, by the commercial property owners in why,
1: Boston. Why does it turn you on? Why does your gig turn you on?
14: <laughs> people. I mean, we, the, the, the ability to connect people and then who knows the next great idea is going to result from that we have incredible minds in the washington dc area and Boston is as i said the epicenter for the smartest people in this area so
1: your job you're like the master connector
14: i feel like the mayor of of Ballston, the mayor of innovation because that's uh-huh.
1: what's happening so your idea your, th- your thought is in order to create more stuff in order to launch more businesses in order to cause more good it's a matter of connecting exactly. the right people Exactly. And you like being in the middle of all that stuff. Oh, we
14: love it. We love it. And simple things, just connecting people through events, through art. Uh, through a happy hour, mm-hmm. you don't know what's going to come out of that. Mm-hmm. That's what's exciting.
1: So it's all about the people, and you're the uh, you're the founder of this organization. Is this a nine to five kind of job oh, for hell you? Hell
14: no! It's a lot longer uh-huh. than that, baby. So
1: do you have to you have to work the weekends and stuff yeah, like that? Yeah, sure, sure. Let me have the website address of this sure, it's organization.
14: It's bostonbid.com, and, and you can download the Boston Connect mobile app.
1: Let me have uh, let me have that website address so one more time.
14: Bostonbid.com.
1: That's B-A, give me the spelling on
14: that. dot com.
1: Excellent. And your name again is? Tina Leone. And the name of the organization? Is the Balsam Business Improvement District. And this has been your business spotlight back in a moment. One help building your business with help from the show's CEOs. Our CEOs can help you uncover more opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money. All the big issues because our CEOs have been there and done that. Some of the CEOs who have appeared on our shows over the last 10 years may be willing to help you grow, assuming you're serious about your success, serious about your own success, because it all starts with the leader. If you're serious about creating your own successful business or truly committed to putting your nose to the grindstone and doing whatever it takes to make your business successful, we may be able to match you with successful CEOs who have created millions of jobs and earned millions of dollars to help you create your success. We've established unique relationships with a unique universe of over 7,000 CEOs who have created substantial wealth for their companies, their teams, and themselves. These women and men get the build in their blood and often continue to start and build businesses even after they've created substantial wealth for themselves because they love the challenge of building a business. Perhaps we can present you and your business to some of these CEOs to gain their interest in helping you. Now email mentors at executiveleadersradio dot com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio dot com to hopefully match you with some of the CEOs we've had on the show for the last ten years. Mentors at executiveleadersradio dot com.
2: We're back, and you're listening to Executive Leaders Radio. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce you to our next guest, Sherry Karamedis. Medis, Medis, right? Did I get that right? It's Karamedis. Karamedis, executive director of the American Occupational. Therapy Association. Welcome. Sherry. what is AOTA?
0: AOTA is the professional association representing the occupational therapy profession, including the occupational therapists and occupational therapy assistants. And
2: how big or small is this organization? Um,
0: We have 67,000 members and a staff of 80.
2: How did you get a job there?
0: I've been in the association sector for a number of years, and I've been at AOTA for a year. Uh, They recruited me as they were going through a change process And
2: what was the thing about you that they saw that said this is an important person to have here now?
0: I think my history of being a change leader and helping associations go through Productive and effective change Mm. and perhaps even my background because I'm trained in the neurosciences And there's a connection with occupational therapy. Uh, Where are you from? I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio. Uh,
2: any brothers or sisters?
0: I have two younger sisters.
2: So you're the oldest of three. Yes. What's the oldest of three like?
0: <laughs> it places a lot of pressure and high expectations on you but also a lot of responsibilities for taking care of your is younger ones. Is
2: self-imposed one. or is that something mom and dad did?
0: No, it's probably self-imposed.
2: <laughs> okay, what were mom and dad doing?
0: My father was a business executive and my mother was an optician who started her own business.
4: Sherry, what activities were you participating in growing up?
0: I was very active in science, but outside of, of science, I was also doing art, and I did dance, swimming, and field hockey.
4: What position did you play on the field hockey team? I was a forward. Uh, talk to us about that. the characteristic of a forward in field hockey.
0: Uh, a forward is intended to go for it, so kind of being an aggressor and a scorer for the team, but it was also team-based.
4: And... That aggressiveness, where did that translate throughout your life and in in your career?
0: I wouldn't exactly call it aggressiveness. I would call it proactivity. And I think it's the concept of going after things and not being restrained when I saw an opportunity to really pursue it.
2: And how does that show up for you now in in, in the work that you do leading this organization?
0: I I think it's identifying opportunities for the organization and for the profession that we represent, looking for how we create that into something new and finding the most effective path for Hmm. pursuing that. Interesting. What do you so Sherry, can you
5: uh, share with us uh, between ages of uh, 8 and 14, was was that when you determined that you had an interest in neuroscience or what age was it?
0: It was at a young age. I'm, I'm not exactly sure if it was at 8 or 9 or 10. I was always in, interested in science. I have an uncle who is a neurosurgeon, so I think that really piqued my interest in understanding the brain and how it affected all
5: of our functions. And uh, you mentioned that uh you're a change leader. How does that, how do, how do you connect neuroscience with a change leader?
0: Everything about the brain uh, helps us function. And my research was actually in neuroplasticity, the concept that the brain is able to change over time and respond to challenge and injury. So that was my first kind of inquiry or foray into the change process. And now I apply it to how we adapt to change in different environments.
6: you, You just talked about adaptability and the brain. There's something that you told us in the green room about your family and used the two words active debate. Mm -hmm. How does that translate both into your neuroscience and then your work in association management?
0: I think in the association world, you are working with a very large volunteer pool, and you're also dealing with staff. And when you represent professions, you're helping them not only practice better, but face the changes in our world and our society. In order to do that, you have to identify things from new lenses, and you have to explore all those possibilities. So it is that adaptability process and finding the best approach, testing it out, and seeing if it works. And
6: did that happen from your family debate
0: um, it didn't it happened in the family debates because we would have 10 people sitting around in 20 different opinions and you had to explore different possibilities but it was really reinforced when I was doing uh, my doctoral work and what I set out to do um, I came across something even more novel and new and I had to be prepared to adapt pivot and change
6: but one of those things that part of the debating it's not just talking, it's the opposite,
0: isn't it? it it's, it's the act of listening and then formulating new ideas based on that.
2: This was fostered at the dinner table and beyond?
0: Yes. What do you got there, Andrew?
4: Sherry, one of the things that you mentioned in the green room is you've had an extraordinary career leading a lot of major organizations. Talk to me about uh, your comment around helping others enjoy new opportunities.
0: My career, once I left the laboratory, has not really been involved in the profession in which I trained. But I found that my curiosity, my desire to learn about new things, and my ability to ask questions and help people understand how to explain what they do and explore new opportunities was a real skill and perhaps a gift. So I've leveraged that throughout my career in helping people find new opportunities in the areas in which they work.
4: Is that where risk and experimentation come into play? I think, in part,
0: it it comes from uh, risk and experimentation. It's also that willingness to listen to them and help them listen better, and then making them feel comfortable with exploring what they do from new perspectives.
5: Sherry, in the green room, you mentioned uh, leading by making people feel safe. What does that actually mean?
0: Well, I, I think um, when we talk about being in a fear mode, if I can put it in the context of neuroscience, when you're fearful, you only operate at the lower levels of your brain. So you don't use your, really think, your thinking capacity. If someone feels safe and they're listening and they're willing to explore, they're more open to new possibilities. But if they're not in that safe place, they're not going to explore that.
2: Who created that safe space for you growing up as a child?
0: I think that safe space was created by my parents and my entire family what do you mean what do they do they encouraged all of us to explore what we were passionate about to explore new opportunities sometimes it wasn't the first thing that you encountered and being open to all kinds of possibilities so what kind of
2: things did you explore as a child
0: I explored different areas of science. I explored dance and I was not the most gifted dancer, but they encouraged me to do that. They encouraged me to learn about the arts, to learn about other culture, and then to explore different areas of possibility.
2: Did it pique your curiosity or did it build your confidence or how did it impact you?
0: It was a combination of building confidence and piquing curiosity. I I think as any person is is maturing in their life, you have to gain the confidence to go out and explore new paths, and they encouraged us to do that.
2: Did you see yourself as as literally being a neuroscientist growing up?
0: I, I, from a very young age, I did.
2: You knew that?
0: I knew that I wanted to study more about the brain, whether I was going to be a a laboratory researcher or a a physician was undetermined, and I chose the laboratory route. And and not to make this a gross
2: conversation, but what what, what were you doing as a kid that might have been evidence of that that translated to, to how you ended up doing what you were doing?
0: I would find things to uh, to bring home and dissect to find out how they worked. Um, It was like
2: biology class. It was
0: like biology class. But you did it in your house in the basement of my house. I go over well. Uh, Not with my mother.
6: (laughs) (laughs) So Sherry, you know, you you've been down this pathway of learning and studying the brain, and then transitioning into the C-suite of association management. Mm and we translated the active debate. Aren't you still studying the brain?
0: I am. Um, I actually do some uh, background research on uh, the neuroscience of leadership and change management. That's kind of a hobby for me.
4: So they're, they're correlated.
0: They are correlated.
4: Sherry, what do you take from mom into your leadership role?
0: I think one of the things that my mother inspired me is to really take risks. Uh, She um, set off in a profession that she was never originally planning on going into and starting her own business, and the comfort level in talking and listening to people. She was obviously in a sales-related position. I was more of the scientific type, so she taught me those interpersonal skills. And dad? Uh, I think he did a lot of that, but he also instilled in me a sense of what it takes for a business to thrive. And in the association world, you need a business sense. You need the inspirational sense as yeah, well. Yeah, that
4: didn't come naturally to a neuroscientist, I wouldn't think.
0: Um, it was not my original orientation as I was thinking about going into the science, but it fit very well as I pursued my career.
2: You said you were the oldest of three sisters. Is your success something that surprises them, or what? They had you pegged from the beginning knew this would be no, something you would excel at.
0: I don't think they're surprised by my success. I, I think they admire what I've done because we're very different in our likes and in our career paths. And I think it, they admire what I've done, as okay. I admire them. Sherry, what's the website
2: address for um, AOTA?
0: AOTA.org.
2: Thanks. We've been listening to Sherry Karamidas. Executive Director at the American Occupational Therapy Association. We've had a great show. We've had Courtney Speth, who is CEO at Growth Period, Rachel Everett, CEO at Viderity, Tracy Shen at Managing Partner at Florin Group, and Sherry Karamides, Executive Director at the AOTA. I'd like to thank all my co-hosts, Andrew Howard of Howard Insurance, Joe Applebaum of the Potomac Companies, and Gabe Muller at Muller Consulting, for helping develop our storyline and hopefully delivering to our listening audience an entertaining and educational show. And I'd like to thank our listening audience for listening, otherwise we wouldn't have a radio show. Don't forget to visit our website, executiveleadersradio.com, to learn more about our executive leaders. Have a great day. Bye.